to Efficient Secrets, a podcast from the Oxford Constitutional Studies Forum. I'm Nick Dickinson, and I'm an academic at the University of Oxford's Department for Politics and the Bingham Fellow in Constitutional Studies at Balliol College. In this series, I'm talking to experts at Oxford, along with some other guests, about how constitutional studies can help us understand democratic backsliding. In this, the last episode of our first season, we'll look at one final issue which bears on the question of backsliding, how democratic constitutions deal with the secret state. Even in democratic states, some aspects of state activity are difficult or impossible to make fully transparent and accountable to the public. This is because some actions must necessarily be covert in order to be effective, from the operation of intelligence services to military operations and sensitive weapons systems. Governments may need to be able to protect certain information about this from public release, temporarily or even more problematically, indefinitely. But can such restrictions ever be justified from the perspective of democratic states? And if so, where does necessary information security cross the line into secret states which exist beyond democracy? To explore these highly complex questions, I spoke to Professor Harold Coe. Harold is currently the Eastman Visiting Professor at Oxford and a visiting fellow of Balliol College. In his usual academic post, he's the Sterling Professor of International Law and former Dean of Yale Law School, where he's taught since 1985, authoring eight books and more than 200 articles, including the National Security Constitution, sharing power after the Iran-Contra affair. It was particularly interesting to speak to him on this topic, however, because Harold is not just a scholar, but a lawyer involved in issues of national security, both inside and outside of the top levels of government, serving under four US presidents, most recently as a senior advisor to the Biden administration. Among the issues he'd dealt with in his time in government were debates over the legality of targeted killing by aerial drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, and other countries included by the US government as being within the scope of the war on terror. But he's also dealt with issues of the security state as a campaigning lawyer on the outside, notably in the early 1990s, when he led a group of Yale law students and human rights lawyers in litigation against the US government to free Haitian refugees interned at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I talked with Harold in his office in Balliol shortly before he spoke to an event at the Blavatnik School on the Ukraine war the latest international crisis where he's also been active, helping to file a case against Russia at the International Court of Justice. My name is Harold Hongju Ko. I'm Sterling Professor of International Law at Yale Law School in Connecticut, USA. So this episode focuses on this question of the connection between democratic constitutionalism and the areas of even democratic states which have to be secret. And I think secrecy is something that we associate often with autocratic states. In fact, some autocratic states seem to build themselves explicitly around those principles when we look at for example, the Soviet Union. So I wonder, in what way is, is democratic accountability 
consistent with the existence of a secret state which isn't subject to the normal rules. Can we reconcile these two things on a theoretical level, or is there some fundamental clash here? Yes, I think we can reconcile them. I mean, I think of uh, the governing board of a college or a, a university engages in confidential discussions about who will be hired or fired. And um, that's obviously consistent with uh, what you do. In, in those cases, the secrecy uh, fosters candor um, and prevents information from being misused. So I think that um, the idea that democracies have no secrets is false. Democracies have lots of secrets. The question is how to make sure that uh, people are not keeping secrets about illegality or uh, misconduct or other kinds of misbehavior. So how can then democracies create sort of constitutional or other rules to ensure accountability in the parts of, of state activity which necessarily remain secret or confidential if we don't think there's a fundamental clash here? Well, I think uh, there have been three standard ways. <clears throat> One is freedom of information um, or declassification over time, where documents uh, might be classified uh, for a particular time, but then uh, can be seen and read later on. Uh, I worked in the government for more than a decade of my life. Uh, many, many of the things I read were classified at the moment I read them, but two days later they were all in the newspaper, so there's no reason to keep them as secrets. Uh, second is to have a, a, a system of checks and balances with courts or other kinds of checking institutions that are themselves bound by rules of confidentiality. Uh, in the United States government, for example, there's something called the uh, FISA court, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which meets in secret. Now, in fact, they generally approve warrants for wiretapping, but uh, friends of mine, lawyers who have worked in there say the burden of them to make the case for uh, a uh, intelligence operation is much higher, made much higher by the fact that they have to bring before a neutral body. And a third possibility is a system of uh, internal checks and balances uh, within the executive branch, where parts of the executive branch are asking for information, for example, inspectors general. Now, obviously, in the system of external checks and balances, the legislative branch can also play an oversight role um, if, if they're not dysfunctional. But some countries, including my own, are increasingly having problems with legislative dysfunctionality. So I suppose to focus on that last point, I guess all of these solutions in some sense rely on quite a high level of institutional trust, that we have to put our trust in institutions which we might not be able to directly observe the operation of. So I mean, is that is that a problem for, for this uh, way of controlling the secret state, that in some sense it's, it's premised on a very high level of institutional trust? Uh, well, <laughs> it... Some of this trust is, is um, based on clean process. And you can have situations where there is a process, obvious process foul that can be spotted out. Uh, a good example I'd give from the U.S. experience in recent years was the opinion justifying the use of torture by the CIA. Uh, that was an opinion that was written by the Deputy Assistant Attorney General of the Office of Legal counsel at the Justice Department, the uh, general counsel's office. Uh, it was written to the vice president's lawyer. 
Now, you know, the vice president's lawyer is not supposed to be talking to the deputy assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel. The vice president is supposed to be talking to the attorney general who's supposed to be talking to his subordinate. So even understanding that that's the chain of inquiry and the chain of response tells you there's something wrong with it. And when you get those kinds of trouble signals, then you can ask about why have there been more vetting of these processes. But very, very often in uh, national security, a bad process leads to bad outcomes. Uh, another example being uh, the Muslim ban by the Trump administration, famously done by Stephen Miller, uh, with virtually no input from anybody else, and uh, predictably it was a disaster and uh, a great black mark on the United States. So in a sense, we can have the rule of law and the protections that come with that, and we can maybe observe the aspects of the system that relate to its good functioning without maybe observing all of the outcomes? Is that is that the idea there? Yeah, there's a question as to how you build in these checks and balances without unveiling the substance of the process. Uh, a speech that President Obama gave in May 2013 about drones said that he thought that there should be a third-party check uh, but he acknowledged that that third-party review couldn't be done before the event because usually if you're targeting a terrorist, uh, you have too little time. Jeremy Wright, the attorney general here, said something similar. And so he was arguing in favor of some kind of immediate ex-post review. Uh, so, for example, executive action recently um, that caused the death of many civilians was revealed that, the, in fact, the ex-post process was entirely defective, which has called really a lot of the legitimacy of the drone process into doubt. I suppose one way we could envisage doing something like that or, or imbuing the system with trust is that you would use opposition parties, in a sense. You would use parts of the political system that were oppositional to those in power, but that you could, in a sense, trust not to reveal that information publicly. But I suppose if we think about that particularly in American context, it's very difficult to envisage that, that going on. So in a sense, this is also premised on, on polarization, not getting into institutions and, and degrading them, that we need actually some level of oppositional checking, but not too much. Well, you, you need some <clears throat> agreement on the basic ground rules. Mm. Um, it used to be that the opposing parties would respect things like um, classifications, uh, or that they would um, um, uh, mind uh, the the walls that were built up between the executive and the legislative branch. In the last administration under Trump, Devin Nunes, who was in charge of the Intelligence Committee, famously went over and shared information that he got with the executive branch. Um, you know, in theory, that should never be done in that kind of circumstances, uh, you know, when one branch is uh, investigating another. Um, you should also not share based upon friendships, even though uh, Washington, you very frequently have 12 people at the same cocktail party working on the same thing. Um, and sometimes people having romantic relationships and the like. Uh, so I think as long as you can maintain these basic ground rules, uh, they don't actually, actually have to agree on that much. They just have to agree that if the shoe were on the other foot, they would want the same secrets protected. And finally, I think uh, going back to the idea of trust, you know, Reagan famously said, trust but verify, which means you don't rely on trust alone. You rely on some system of external monitoring to make sure that the trust is warranted. 
So I suppose coming back to the point you made earlier about freedom of information, I mean, is that the ultimate check? Because, of course, in some systems, as you say, we have freedom of information laws which provide quite fast access to information. In the UK, we've seen increasing problems, actually, with the, the speed of this system. But in some cases, this may be decades, and in some cases, there may be information which is never released. So, I mean, how do we think about where to draw that line about the appropriate amount of freedom of, of information if we think that, in some sense, that's the ultimate check in addition to these these internal checks that you've you've mentioned? Uh, my experience is that uh, most classified information is massively overclassified, okay. and one of the major justifications for overclassification is not revealing sources and methods. And so you have the absurd situation where they say uh, the fact that your name is uh, Nick Dickinson is classified because how did we know this information? And that there might be some metadata on a document that would suggest that some particular device was used. Almost always that kind of metadata can be stripped out. So I actually think that... Um, um, Another aspect is that they don't sunset the classification. So the classification is in effect until someone affirmatively declassifies. Uh, but we now have a situation in the U.S. government with emails where when you generate the email, you have to state the level of classification and you have to state as the classifying officer when it will be declassified. And so you could say declassify in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. And you can't even write the email until you've made that decision, which I think is a, a helpful thing. And I think it's reduced over classification. So you mentioned the concept of metadata there, which is something which I think possibly 10 years ago, this would have been a word that's very unfamiliar to people. But in a sense, shouldn't we be right to be paranoid in a way about metadata in the modern world that now it becomes so easy to piece things together. We've seen a huge rise in, for example, open source intelligence. I mean, is this driving actually a, a greater focus on secrecy in the state? That states, even democratic states, are becoming more paranoid about the release of information? Or should we not worry about that, that sort of trend? I'm actually even more worried about it with regard to um, personal preferences and tastes. You know, if, if if I happen to look at a medication online that my doctor said I might want to take, then the next thing I do is I see that ads for that medication or its rivals are appearing in my Facebook feed. So somebody is able to tell what disease I might be diagnosed with, which might be a very sensitive matter, uh, simply because of um, uh, some kind of cookies or other cues. And these are, of course, things that um, people like me barely understand. Uh, and it can be extremely misleading. Um, in the early days of the internet, uh, uh, one of my uh, members of my family was, was learning about sex education as a young person. And so we looked up some books, and then the next thing we got was Amazon sending me a note saying, since you're interested in pedophilia, <laughs> we're making the following suggestions, which I found to be amazingly intrusive of privacy. Because, you know, just because we look up something on the internet, does that suddenly entitle people to, to uh, uh, check it out in the search? Now, obviously, the same goes for, um, uh, you know, many people falsely assume that their texts are uh, are secret. It turns out, of course, they're not. They're shown in numerous places. People who 
use uh, email and uh, texts on university systems, of course, are always subject to examination. But people forget, and they just assume that they're private. Uh, and then they might switch over to systems like uh, Signal or WhatsApp. Uh, but unless they have end-to-end encryption, you have no certainty. Or you could be like me, you communicate with somebody on Signal and you set it for half an hour deletion. And then half an hour later, you forget what you wrote. <laughs> and there's no way to tell. So all of these things come back to bite you in one way or another. Mm, and I suppose we've seen yeah, even with end-to-end encryption, if you can compromise the device, as we've seen with something like the Pegasus system, you can still get around it. Right. So I wonder then, I mean, is there... Is there a fallacy in chasing secrecy too far? Is really the solution to this that government should do more or as much as possible in the open so that it doesn't matter who sees it? Or will there always be a fundamental need for for governments to do a good part of what they do in the dark? Well, I think you you should um, not exclude leaking, or which is sometimes called pleaking, planting a leak namely as a policy matter. Uh, in, in others, you tell somebody ahead of time, we're going to do this as a way of securing media support. And the fact of the matter is that this is so widespread. So, you know, in the United States, we have a system where almost everything is classified, but almost everything is leaked. So absolute genuine secrets are very, very few, in fact. Uh, and... Um, Having worked in bureaucracies where they tried to keep secrets, um, if, if you're a part of that system, it's sufficiently unusual and what's going on is sufficiently strange that you pick up that something is happening and um, you ask around and you find out what's going on. So I, I think that there, there and, you know, and that's where the network effects of uh, people talking to uh, uh, members of Congress who might be former roommates and things like that. Uh, or to journalists. Um, finally, I think that the tweet culture and the link between social media and uh, the mainstream press has had a tremendous effect because uh, if somebody breaks open the story, uh, then it can, um, uh, there's a, a rush to get deeper into it. And it, it almost always comes out very quickly, like within a day or so. Thanks for listening to Efficient Secrets, a podcast from the Oxford Constitutional Studies Forum. That was the final episode of our first season, focusing on democratic backsliding. We'll be back with a second season to be announced soon, and if you've got any ideas for topics or themes you'd like us to cover, then we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch via Twitter or email. The podcast was hosted and produced by me, Nick Dickinson, with administrative support from Dorian Singh and Helen Morley. Our music is Old Street from Orange Productions, licensed by Tune Tank.